Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. The past year has been a trying one for the National Park Service and for many of the units of the National Park System. For the agency, employee morale continued to be a major issue as housing, pay, and leadership remained sore spots for many who work for the service. On the ground, climate change continued to impact parks, from sea level rise and more potent storms to wildfires and hotter and drier conditions that adversely affected vegetation, wildlife, and facilities. This is Kurt Repencheck, your host at the National Parks Traveler. With time running out on 2023 and 2024 on the horizon, we're going to be taking a look this week and next at many of the top stories that played out or are playing out across the National Park System and with the National Park Service. Joining me for the conversation are Mike Murray, Chair of the Coalition to Protect America's National Parks, and Kristen Brengel, the Senior Vice President of Government Affairs for the National Parks Conservation Association. We'll be back in a minute with Mike and Kristen. Adventure awaits. Explore the beauty of our national parks with Explorer Maps. Whether you're captivated by the breathtaking landscapes of Yellowstone or the wild shores of Acadia, Explorer Maps has a perfect map to connect you to your favorite place. Visit explorermaps.com to find your next adventure. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences it offers endure for generations to come. Show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It's also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That's why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org. Hey, it's great to have you guys back. Happy holidays, Mike and Kristen. Same, Same to you. you. Well, um, as I um, said, we're going to be taking a look back at uh, 2023 across the park system and the park service, and we've got quite a lot of topics to discuss, and that's why we're going to break this show into two parts uh, this week and uh, next week. Um, why don't we start off with agency issues, and in, in no particular order, one issue that has been hanging over the Park Service and the employees for a number of years has been pay and housing. Um, has any progress been made on that in the past year? Certainly, individual parks are making progress on housing. It's um, it's hard to tell if there's unified, you know, system-wide progress or not. Uh, we know some parks are, have been able to use uh, project funds such as uh, GAOA or other fund sources to renovate housing. A few parks have come up with creative uh, partnerships, such as with a friends group that might buy an apartment building in the community, you know, with donor funding that the friends group has raised, but then they use that as seasonal housing for the park. Um, Park Service just issued an update of uh, Director's Order 36, which is the housing management policy. And I, I think it was a really important update, uh, a lot of good stuff in there. It, you know, it doesn't solve the funding issue uh, in, in order of 
increasing the quality of housing and the quantity of housing, but it's, it's progress. It's a step in the right direction. You know, it's interesting. You mentioned, Mike, that uh, some outside groups, some friends groups are, are taking steps. And I know Friends of Acadia bought a B&B, I think, that they're turning into um, employee housing. And they, they bought several acres of, of land um, up near Jordan Pond for um, the Park Service sometime to, to build structures on. And, of course, um, out in um, Yellowstone, the superintendent was able to come up with you know, millions of dollars to revamp employee housing. Um, down at um, Arches, um, the, the friends group there bought, I think, a, 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 bed, a house that can accommodate nine nine people. Is that is that the way to go, Kristen? Do you think uh, friends groups should be saddled with this issue? This is such a massive issue across the parks right now. It's interesting when we were working on the Great American Outdoors Act, uh, some superintendents at the time, it was the superintendent at Glacier, said to one of our staff, I don't want my park housing on the deferred maintenance list. I want to bulldoze it. We need completely new facilities for our staff people. And I think that's correct, that the staff dormitory style housing that existed for many, many years, I don't think satisfies folks in 2024. I think folks are looking for more apartment style housing. And um, when I was talking to folks out in Grand Teton about that earlier this year, it's sort of the needs and the safety issues and so forth have changed from way back when to now. And many of the park housing units haven't been updated in a really long time. I think one statistic here is that um, 66% of park housing is outdated and the repair needs are about $383 million. And so these numbers are not as huge as the general repair numbers for the park service. So you would think Congress could come in and take care of this housing repair need fairly quickly. But I think it's going to have to be, Kurt, something that Congress has to come in and address. And I think it goes beyond the Park Service, too. I think other federal agencies could potentially um, use the housing as well, as well as concessionaires. I think that one of the big issues is that many Park Service staff are being priced out of housing in communities. It's just too expensive. And I think I was talking to the superintendent at Yellowstone over a year ago, and he was watching the housing market outside of Yellowstone and Gardner, and it was just impossible to buy anything affordable um, in the community. And so I think there are many solutions to this problem. One is to build housing in the parks and have Congress help fund that, along with any philanthropy that could be helpful. But I also think we have to figure out this affordable housing situation in the gateway communities. And I think the gateway communities have to be part of the solution by allowing so many properties to be Airbnbs and uh, temporary housing, I think is causing a serious issue with being able to have staff close to parks and being able to rent in an affordable way. Um, so I think there's many layers to the solution here, but it can be a morale killer and it can be a hiring problem very, very easily uh, when you have a family and you want to put your kids in a school system in a gateway community and you can't afford anything, rental or purchase. Yeah, yeah. Grand Teton's a, a 
particular um, example of that with uh, Jackson being the gateway community and um, as the, the, the saying goes, the, the billionaires push the millionaires out. And so where do you find not just affordable housing, but, but land that you could build housing on unless you built into the park? And of course, the Grand Teton National Park Foundation was able to raise some money to, to buy some um, structures on Mormon Row, I believe, um, one of them that's being transitioned into employee housing. Um, not everybody can do that kind of thing. Not everybody's got a friends group that has the wherewithal of a, a Grand Teton Park Foundation. Um, you know, I was reading a story the other day about, you, you mentioned Airbnbs and, and, and college towns, and this was um, surrounding the University of Georgia in Athens, Georgia, and how, you know, the rich alumni, they want to come back in the fall for every football game, every home football game. And so what they were doing was, you know, buying houses that they would use for, you know, five or six weekends in the fall. And they would sit idle the rest of the year. And it was pushing up um, housing prices. And um, as you mentioned, Kristen, you know, the, the Airbnbs and the vacation rentals by owners are taking up a lot of the housing um, stock. And so... Yeah, it's it's a tough it's a tough issue, and um, and it's changing these communities outside of parks that were once family oriented communities. And some of our staff who live outside of parks say, you know, my street used to be filled with kids, and now it's filled with a lot of houses that are empty during the year. And so that's why I think, Kurt, it's not just the Park Service stepping in or Congress stepping in to fund housing, but we need to have a conversation with the gateway communities about their own communities changing. I think they have, you know, they have a say in zoning and and all of this. And, and, um, you know, when you have just unoccupied houses for many months out of the year, is that really what you want your community to be um, going into the future? So I think, I think this is a very um, important issue that needs to be tackled in a very broader way. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see where how it plays out. And and again, the, one of the prime questions is: Is this a problem that Congress has to solve, or are they going to push it onto the backs of, of friends organizations and expect them to to come up with solutions? You'd be surprised. I, I don't think Congress puts pressure on the philanthropy to do that stuff. I think it just becomes uh, part of the mix of the fighting that goes on in Congress over whether to cut the Park Service or fund them well. You know, but I don't think they look at housing in particular. I actually think there's a lot of bipartisan support on the on the housing issue on the Hill. I, I think we've heard from many folks across all political spectrums about this concern. It's not it's but it just gets swooped into all the wrangling and fighting on on appropriations. Yeah. Mike, are you hearing the same thing from your sources in Congress? Um I would say so. I mean there's in the past been the discussion about the Lodge Act, which would create a new authority to partner with nonprofits or community organizations. Kristen, you'll, <laughs> there's some bill that's got bazillion things in it now. I think the Lodge Act is incorporated into a current kind of really large bill. I can't remember the name of it, but it's to encourage use of parks kind of thing. Um, I, I compare it almost a subset, but a really important subset of deferred maintenance, that the problem has reached the point that there's no easy single solution other than Congress just giving the Park Service enough money 
to get housing inventory up, up to par. So they're all in good condition and that's unlikely to happen. So the reality at a park is the superintendent has to be a wheeler dealer and figure out multiple approaches. And if they have a great friends group that can raise a lot of money, that's an option. Many parks, that's not an option. So um, to me, there's no simple single solution that's likely to occur. So uh, to a certain extent, there's gotta be creativity and partnering and collaboration, I think, to help address the problem. It's not gonna solve it, but it can help address it. And of course, you know, housing is just one issue that is weighing on the park service employee. Um, you know, whether they've got decrepit, deteriorating housing that they can live in or whether they have to, you know, drive an hour or more from outside the um, the park to, to get to their jobs. You know, it's, it, it's a drag on morale. You know, recently um, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey came out and that's a uh, a government survey that um, tries to gauge the pulse of uh, employees, whether they're working for the Park Service or the Forest Service or some other federal agency. Um, Park Service Director Chuck Sams sent uh, an email out to the field staff saying that the latest um, survey showed great improvements. He said there were high scores in areas like respect and supervisor support of the work-life balance. But the Public Employees for Environmental Responsibility at the same time, noted that 36% of the respondents said the Park Service was not a good place to work, and that 45% doubt that senior leaders maintain high standards of honesty and integrity. Two different messages there, um, but pretty pretty alarming, um, some of those numbers, where you know 36% didn't think the Park Service was a good place to work, and that their, their leaders um, were not honest. How do you how do you interpret these surveys? Um, I think they're important um, snapshots of employee feelings, employee perceptions at a particular point in time. Um, you know the different ways to spin the current report is kind of glass half empty or glass half full. If you get out the magnifying glass and look at a lot of the results a lot of the results are a few percentage points better this year than last year. But the long-term trend is that morale has been low. You know, add up all the different questions and responses, morale has been low for a long time and it's not gonna be easily corrected. Um, I've talked to different employees. To me, what I find impressive <laughs> is when you look at surveys that gauge the public's most respected federal agencies. And it's not broken down by individual agencies, more by departments, but the Department of Interior consistently is one of the most respected federal agencies and its bureaus by the public. And yet when you see the reports about Park Service employee surveys, employees morale is low. And it's been that way for a long time. There's multiple reasons. So to me, I think it's a testament to the dedication of Park Service employees that their perceptions, their low morale doesn't convert into poor public service, that they're still highly respected by the public. They're still providing good service. I think the root cause, and there are many contributing causes, but the root cause, I think, is chronic underfunding. 
leading to understaffing, inadequate housing, the many contributing factors that, contrib that contribute to the low morale. Kind of go back to parks are busier than ever, at least some of them are. They've lost, you know, pick your numbers, but at least 10% of their FTEs or employee equivalents over the last 10 years. So inadequate staffing, busier than ever. I, my own observation from my career is that many of the popular parks have become much busier in the spring and the fall. So there's no quiet shoulder season at Yellowstone or Yosemite anymore. It's, you know, six months of full speed ahead. And parks are funded to rely on seasonal staffing and seasonal staffing used to be for the core summer season, three or four months. So all those things translate into employees expected to do more without getting more support, more coworkers, more funding, better housing, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a tough ship to change course. I think the current efforts by park service leadership are ambitious. Uh, they came out, out about, well, almost a year ago with something called the Rise Vision Action Plan that identified 39 action items. Many of them were kind of personnel, hiring practices, training, development, those kinds of things. And if they could make a dent in those and get a lot of those done, it would at least provide the framework to address some of the employee concerns. Um, it's a little hard to tell if they've made much progress. So, you know, that, that plan, the action plan raised hopes. And I've talked to a few employees recently. We've tried to do a little bit of analysis of do employees even know about the Rise Vision action plan that's intended to address morale issues. Some employees don't even know about it. Others aren't sure if there's been any progress on it. And you know, some are, are very candid and they say, look, we know it's very difficult to change morale overnight. We just wanna see some tangible progress so that we can have hope. Because right now, I think low morale is self-perpetuating. There's a lack of hope for improvement and it's gonna take dedicated leadership, making it a priority to show tangible progress on some kind of action items and whether the rise action plan is the right plan or not. And, you know, you could debate that for a long time, but um, yeah, I, I guess if I can sum up that long-winded description, there's a lot of moving parts that contribute to bad morale. And honestly, I think leadership needs to not only say the right things and they need to show some action. Some sure. tangible progress so that employees have a reason to hope it'll get better. Yeah, yeah. And, of course, a lot of things are out of the control. I know Chuck Sams, during his confirmation hearing a few years back, said that improving employee morale was his number one goal. But he he is kind of hamstrung if Congress is not going to provide the funding to boost pay levels, to hire more staff, um, to improve housing. And he acknowledges much in the um, the communications issues um, in his memo to the field the other day, um, saying that they have to improve their communications. And obviously, um, what you said, Mike, about some employees not being familiar with the Rise Act or what's being done, 
at the same time, it seems like the Park Service is sending mixed messages. Um, and by that, I mean, you know, the, the leadership issue. Um, they recently appointed a superintendent to the Appalachian Trail, um, National Scenic Trail, who the uh, Office of Inspector General um, had found committed fraud, you know, um, and he's brought back into a superintendency position. Um, Kristen, I don't know how you weigh all these things and, and what the Park Service leadership can do and what they can't do, but are, are they sending mixed messages with, with those sorts of appointments? Well, I think um, I, I'm, I'm not as familiar with that situation um, in terms of, you know, just the personnel issue. Um, but I think the Park Service does need to look at who is being hired into positions and making sure that they're sort of like what dovetailing off of what Mike was saying, training up um, a variety of people to take on leadership positions within the agency. I would love to see more women, for instance, uh, take on leadership positions and they need to have a very good plan for moving people through the system and finding younger talent and moving them through the process. At least from what I hear sometimes, Kurt, is some folks don't apply for superintendent positions and, and they should be. And you just see, you know, people with the same sort of attributes applying for leadership positions. And, and, and so I just think there needs to be a real emphasis on bringing people through the system and training them and giving them opportunities and getting those Bevanetto fellows here in Washington, DC to learn how Congress operates and works and go spend time in the director's office and really getting some of these robust programs going again. I, I just kind of feel like you hear the same names swirl around every time there's a discussion about leadership and we need more people to rise through the ranks and and address some of these long-standing issues. You know, you mentioned the employee survey, Kurt, but you know, there were other surveys before that where people of different backgrounds didn't feel accepted at the Park Service and they didn't feel like they could talk to their bosses and they could raise issues. And you know, there needs to be a bit of a, a shift where employees really feel like there's um, a spot for them if they want to become leaders within the agency. So, you know, I worry about this all the time. You know, when you think about the future of our parks and the future of conservation and historic preservation, um, and you see an aging uh, staff, you are sort of like, where are all the young people? And where are the entrepreneurial folks? And, um, and I've gone to quite a few parks in the last year, and it's nice to see sort of like these young archaeologists at some parks and people who are enhancing interpretation, the young folks working on visitor use management in certain parks. Every time I go to a park and I meet, you, you know, those younger folks who are, have new tools from universities and are instituting better science and social science and biological science, and they can talk about it. Those folks are the ones that are inspiring me right now. And I just hope they're being cultivated as leaders because I worry that it would be so easy for them to leave the park service and take that 
huge skill set somewhere else to a consulting firm. But I hope they stick with the Park Service and I hope the Park Service focuses on them. Um, but that that would be my worry is all these really great younger folks keeping them at the Park Service. Yeah. You know, back when um, Mary Bomar was um, director of the National Park Service, I believe they had a program to identify the young talent, so to speak, and to, to get them on the track to be a, a superintendent someday. I'm not sure what happened to that program. I don't know if it still exists. I have no idea. Um, I'm vaguely familiar. I remember what happened under Mary. I think some element elements of it may exist, uh, like young superintendents still have virtual <laughs> gatherings. I think they used to be in person. We call superintendents roundtable, where they can get together with fellow superintendents in their region to discuss common issues and things like that. Sort of functions as peer group mentoring. And those kinds of things are really important for developing superintendents to have as resources to help them out. Because, you know, frankly, in a region with 80 parks and two deputy regional directors, the regional director, each deputy regional director may supervise 20 to 25 superintendents. And so they don't have the capacity to give a lot of coaching, mentoring, you know, on the job guidance. It's superintendents, my feeling is it's the best job in the national park system. Because <laughs> you have a fair amount of authority to, you know, apply all the policies and laws and regulations and principles and try to address problems in whatever way you can come up with. But that kind of system also where everything's, it's not management by directives, it's more management by objectives. But that kind of system also allows people to get outside the lines sometimes. So occasionally superintendents do get outside the lines and they need to be investigated and if appropriate disciplined in those cases. I, I do agree with Kristen that Leadership development is the key to the future. That, um, and, and, you know, I don't know if there are any baby boomers still working. I think there are a few because a few I, I know are still there and they're almost my age. Uh, but uh, yeah, th I mean, there's a generational transition going on. And so having developing leaders, emerging leaders, whatever term you want to call it, ready to step into some of the big, difficult challenging positions, large park superintendents, regional directors, or even small park superintendent, if that's your first superintendency, it's a learning curve that needs to be helped with training, mentoring, collaboration with peers, those kinds of things. Yeah. We're talking today with uh, Mike Murray from the Coalition to Protect America's National Parks and Kristen Brengel from the National Parks Conservation Association about some of the top stories across the National Park System and the National Park Service this past year. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. Listener and reader support make the National Parks Traveler possible every day of the year. If you enjoy the Traveler's content, please consider a donation at nationalparkstraveler.org. Gear up for 2024 with Interior Federal Credit Union. Synchronize all your accounts in one place with their tool, Money Management. Money Management allows you to create budgets to fit your lifestyle, set up goals for the future, monitor your account and loan balances with one login, track debt, and more. Apply for membership at interiorfcu.org and sign up for digital banking to get started. 
Federally insured by NCUA. The Yosemite Conservancy helps visitors connect with Yosemite through adventures, volunteering, and the arts. It's the only nonprofit dedicated to supporting Yosemite National Park and funds grants to improve trails, restore habitat, protect wildlife, and inspire the next generation of nature lovers. Learn more at yosemite.org. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to raise private support to deepen everyone's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. Mike, Kristen, um, I guess in discussing employee morale, and and we've talked about the, the increasing visitation to the park service, the park system rather, you have to look at overall staffing. I mean, with the addition, the slowly increasing numbers of units to the park system, does the park service have the needed human resources to properly manage the parks? Well, I think the park service has become very good at um, ensuring that they can get the basics done at the park units. And we want to shape these park units into these glorious places where they have fantastic interpretation, cultural resource staff, natural resource staff, you know, the ability to do the science and then also to forecast, right? We're at a stage right now where the parks really have to look at climate change and the effects that climate change might have on the very resources they are charged to protect. And so some of this, Kurt, is individually staffing the parks and making sure they have um, managers and and the right staff for that park unit. Um, and then the other piece of it is to make sure that they're supported by other institutions within the park service to um, help with designing new roads, uh, preparing for climate change, um, and those types of things. So I know what you're getting at, Kurt, because you don't like all of our park expansion bills that we have uh, <laughs> that we're working on, on with Congress, and you're always questioning these you're new not, national monuments that we work on. You're not reading the Traveler on a regular so, basis, Christian. We talked I, about improving I biodiversity know, protection. I know your history on this particular issue, and I just want to say um, the reason that we all work so hard to expand the park system and to make sure that um, new units come on board is, first of all, you know, when you look at the national park system, 85 um, million acres is not a lot when you think about the entire U.S. and Alaska and the lower 48 and Hawaii and all the other places. Um, We don't have a lot of protected land in this country. And we're seeing wildlife get choked off and and other species getting choked off and and wildlife connectivity is becoming a more present issue that people talk about these days and certainly the addition of Avikwame in Nevada is a great example of connecting the wonderful national parks in southern California to Nevada and making sure those bighorn sheep have enough places to move and the tortoises do too um, and the Joshua trees and so 
you know, seeking out ways to connect these places together and then manage them so that we're protecting all of these species and these ecosystems, I think is critically important. So that's the sort of natural side of it is that is not having these islands of protection everywhere. Sure. Sure. But does the park service have the staff to manage them? I think the park service is one of the agencies that's good at figuring out their resources and figuring out ways to manage for it. Do they have enough staff to do everything? No, that's what I work on most days of my life is lobbying Congress to get more resources for staffing. But I think we have to ask ourselves if losing these opportunities to protect more places is worth it. And we just sit on the park system as it exists and watch it become a bunch of islands that don't have genetically diverse species and Joshua trees that can't survive and so on and so forth. I think we have to think broadly and more long-term about this stuff. And I think the Park Service is good at managing those resources and making sure that they share staff and, and do as good a job as they possibly can. But I think you're always weighing all of these issues at the same time. And, you know, we worry about staffing, but we also worry about our natural world and our country and uh, what we'll be facing, you know, right now and years from now with climate change. And part of that is conservation and making sure that we're conserving land in the right way uh, for the future. And so I think, yeah, we call on the Park Service to stretch themselves um, all the time. And I think many of us who work on parks understand the value of conservation and understand that continuing to connect those places is important. And so, you know, it's all a balancing act, Kurt, and nothing, there's no perfect answer. But I will say as a a total tried and true conservationist, that um, stopping conservation to catch up to some number that you may never reach, I think isn't a good practice. I think we need to, I think we need to continue to protect our natural world and um, and then push Congress con- Congress as hard as we possibly can uh, to fund these agencies well. But but I hate this idea that keeps coming up of let's just stop doing this altogether. It's it's crazy. It's a crazy notion with how much development there is, whether it's housing developments outside of parks, uh, the amount of um, interest there is in developing mines, the interest in developing more energy projects, we're choking these places off right now. So when we have an opportunity to do more conservation, I try to seize those opportunities because I see the pathway right now is energy boom, mining boom, housing boom, and not the kind that we just talked about, housing of people who want second homes near national parks. And the more we choke off these places, um, everyone should be concerned. No, it wasn't intended to be an either-or question. Um, it was just a Park Service staffing question. And Mike, you had a long career with the Park Service and um, were superintendent towards the end. I'm just curious, from your perspective, over your career, have things gotten better? Have they gotten worse? Or have they stayed stagnant in terms of having the necessary human resources to manage these places? That's a tough question. I can't measure it exactly. Uh, I think Throughout my career, there was challenge having enough employees to deal with basic park operations during the busy season. Busy season, like I said earlier, has expanded. It used to be three months 
at a place like Yellowstone now, it's six months. And then you throw in the winters busier than ever also. So there's another busy season. Uh, from my perspective, at least my thinking as a superintendent, I can't say all superintendents think like this, but I bet they, many of them do. You end up being pragmatic about it. You do the best you can with the resources you're given, even though it's not enough. So what I think of it as is park superintendents, park management teams, many of them have gotten really good at getting by on less than enough. And that's not good. There's consequences to that. Deferred maintenance, visitor complaints about not never seeing a ranger or whatever. Those kinds of things come up. But superintendents and park management teams don't have any other choice. Can the Park Service manage all newly designated conservation areas? No. They're spread thin already. There's a Will Rogers quote that I'd like to paraphrase for you. Will Rogers said, real estate's the best investment in the world because they're not making it anymore. Pristine ecosystems, unique ecosystems, uh, migration corridors between established protected areas, et cetera, they're not making it anymore. So in a way it's a race to the finish line, which is gonna go over decades, not years. So I support 30 by 30, try to preserve or conserve 30% of the land and water area in the United States by 2030. But I also don't think everything needs to be in, in the national park system. Park service is spread thin already. They can't manage everything. But part of our organization strategy in advocating for national monuments is areas that have multiple use activities, mining, forestry, uh, oil and gas development, if they're managed more for conservation purposes than for multiple use, because they get designated a national monument, then that adds to the 30% of better protected areas. We're not advocating for these areas to all be added to the national park system. So to me, it's um, there are a lot of solutions or a lot of designations and categories of protected areas that contribute to the overall good. And, but I do think time is slightly running out. Areas that merit being protected or that would add ecological benefit by being protected, it's not getting in better shape as time goes on. It's so, um, anyway, our group supports Conservation measures, we like 30 by 30 because, again, it's not putting everything in the national park system, which the Park Service doesn't have the capability, staffing, or funding to manage everything. But that means there's some protected areas that maybe merit being added to the system as well. So I, I see it evolving. I see over time more units being added. It's not going to get smaller, but also in the long term sense, time's running out. Uh, areas that may be merit protection, another 10, 20, 30 years, they may not be in shape to be salvageable. And that would be lost. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, you know, there are outside impacts that affect the national park system. Um, there's, there's efforts in Congress that impact the national park system. You know, recently, 
we've seen a number of parks come out with air tour management plans, and there are a number of parks that just said, no more, we're not going to permit commercial overflights um, going ahead. Um, Badlands National Park is one, Bandelier National Monument, another, uh, Mount Rushmore, um, I believe the Hawaii National, Hawaii Volcanoes National Park, Haleakala National Park, they're um, cutting back um, air tour overflights. And yet, just recently, there was a, a hearing in Congress in the House where it seems like there's, there's pushback um, by um, Republican members that we need more overflights. We don't need less. Um, Kristen, what, what's going on with that? Yeah, I thought that hearing, I was actually there, um, was really unfortunate from that perspective. <clears throat> Certainly the air tour operators had their day up on the hill, and I didn't think their arguments were that persuasive. In fact, one of the air tour operators said that helicopters don't make that much noise, which I thought was one of the strangest things for someone to say. Um, I was just in New York City chaperoning my daughter's uh, school field trip. And we were at the base of the Brooklyn Bridge. And I can't even tell you, we couldn't even count how many helicopters were buzzing over us on their way to the Statue of Liberty, which you can see from this park. It was incredible that you're in one of the noisiest cities in the country and you could clearly hear the helicopters just buzzing over you the whole time. And it was kind of also shocking how close, once we were on the Brooklyn Bridge walking across, how close they get to you, you know, mm. how, how low they fly. And I think that's part of the issue, Kurt, really is that these air tour operators have had pretty much carte blanche. You know, when the law was passed to regulate air tours, they inflated their numbers incredibly. So they allowed themselves to have thousands and thousands of air tours. And now the law is finally being implemented after 20 years. And it's not shocking that the parks are saying we've got to look at visitor conflicts with people on the ground. And we have to look at the effects on wildlife. And we have to have flight paths that better comport with our management plans. And so now you have a situation where they actually held the air tour operators accountable and said, we're going to take the aggregate of three years of your flying and give you somewhere around that number for many parks. I don't totally agree with that approach. I think in some cases that number is still too noisy for certain parks, but that was a very pragmatic, as Mike was saying, way to handle the situation was to say, you're not even flying as much as your original numbers allowed you to do. And then they're saying you can't fly at certain uh, dawn and dusk times because it interferes with creatures, which I think is a legitimate uh, thing that the Park Service should be expecting air tour operators to respect. I don't really agree with all the flight paths that uh, the Park Service has chosen. I think they should have done a better job avoiding wilderness areas, for instance. And I also think they should have done a better job of avoiding places where people are on super popular trails and and such. And I'll use Utah as an example, since that's where you're sitting, Kurt. Um, Bryce Canyon, you know, they pushed some of the helicopters and the fixed wing planes to the uh, eastern side of the park, but not fully. So you still have them going over trails where people are enjoying themselves. Um, they could have pushed all of the air tours fully to the east 
outside of the park and people would have still been able to see the hoodoos. So that's what bugs me about some of the air tour plans is that they weren't as creative as they could have been. The other thing that bothers me a lot about Bryce um, is that the park service actually says no hovering, no hovering helicopters at Bryce, which sets off an alarm bell in anyone's head who knows Bryce that it's probably to protect the hoodoos from being knocked off, right? But then they later say in the air tour plan, we did not do a vibrology study. So it's like, come on, folks. If you're going to protect the very resource that that park was established for, do the minimum, you know, of protecting that resource and understand if these helicopters are going to, you know, cause vibrations that are going to harm the hoodoos. And so there's stuff like that where I really support the Park Service's approach to this, where they've taken a very pragmatic approach to it. But then there is more studying that they should have done, but they used a categorical exclusion. So they tried to speed these along to meet the court order deadlines. And I think they made some mistakes along the way there um, in doing that. But going back to that congressional hearing, which I think many, many things were said um, during that hearing that were fascinating. I think there's just a lot of high rhetoric one of the things that I've pointed out to folks is that in someone's testimony, they said millions of people are taking air tours. I think the aggregate is like 40, 45,000 tops. Yeah. And when you compare that number to the 318 million people who are on the ground visiting parks, it's not even comparable. Yeah. And then one of the other talking points I think that was wacky is that middle class people prefer air tours. So when you go to a park, there's no way you could hike everything. So the best thing for a middle-class person is to get on an air tour to see everything. First, that implies that you could fly wherever you want over the park, which you can't. But secondly, have you looked at the cost of one seat on a helicopter on one of these flights? It's very expensive. Yeah. And and I don't know my family of four that I'd pay a thousand dollars for my kids and my husband to take an hour long tour over a park, you know, and do it multiple times a year, anything like that. I think some of this rhetoric is really just almost impossible to uh, make sense out of. Um, and I think some of the rhetoric has just been so inflated and you could tell I'm, these are the issues that drive me crazy on a daily basis. And, and PCA has commented on every single air tour plan and we try to be really reasonable in the recommendations that we make. But I think the Park Service, there are certain parks where I think they could have um, done a better job. But I also think places like Mount Rushmore, um, and this came out in the testimony as well, those folks can fly around Mount Rushmore. They don't have to be in the park. And that plan specifically says that people complained that they couldn't hear the interpretation that was happening in the park. Hmm. That is such a direct conflict that if you're an air tour operator, you shouldn't be there then. And yeah. you should be a good business owner and move your operation in a way that doesn't interfere with the other park visitors. That's just simple math. If you want to recruit more business is don't interfere with the people on the ground, but it's just, I just find all of this to be so weird that the mythology that's being said and no one's 
no other folks are sort of looking into these numbers and the rhetoric that, that the air tour operators are using and seeing if it's actually factually accurate. It just is so inaccurate. It's such bad misinformation. And so, but I have to say, after working on so many different user conflict issues in the park system, it's really nice to see these plans coming out. And I think it's the dawn of a new day. And I think it's, it's good that our parks will be more protected than they were once these plans are implemented. Well, what I what I struggle to understand is how one park or, or a handful of parks can say this is totally against the, the Park Service mission to preserve resources and, and whatnot, and so we're going to ban them. And other parks says we don't have any problem with it. We're talking today with uh, Mike Murray from the Coalition to Protect America's National Parks and Kristen Brengel from the National Parks Conservation Association about some of the top stories across the National Park System and the National Park Service this past year. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. Full of stunning photography and thought-provoking reads, Smokey's Life is a biannual magazine produced by Great Smoky Mountains Association. Members receive it free of charge each spring and fall, and it is available for purchase in retail stores throughout Great Smoky Mountains National Park and online at smokiesinformation.org. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, Foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the national park system for decades to come. You can see their successes at gtnpf.org. Whether it be strategy, business planning, change management, board development, executive search, or diversity planning, Petrero Group is here to help. They mix a depth of experience in the parks and land space with a breadth of best practices from other industries. For more information or to schedule a preliminary conversation, go to potrerogroup.com, P-O-T-R-E-R-O group.com. The Everglades Foundation, the only organization whose sole mission is to restore and protect America's Everglades. Learn more at evergladesfoundation.org. We're going to have to keep moving along um, to get through some of these issues. Mike, some of the other outside um, projects that um, are impacting national parks, I mean, up in Canada, you have the, the debate over whether or not to um, create the Ambler Road, which would um, access um, some mining operations. In Idaho, you've got the Lava Ridge Wind Project near Minidoka National Historic Site, um, oil and gas development in the parks, such as at Chaco Culture and, of course, Big Cypress National Preserve, which uh, MPCA just came out with a report, you know, looking at what sort of um, restoration has been made, you know, six years after we first saw oil exploration in Big Cypress, or most recently saw um, exploration in Big Cypress. And then just the other week, um, uh, county commission in Virginia apparently cleared the way for a, a data processing center a huge facility that takes a lot of energy, a lot of water, to be built across the street from Manassas, Manassas National Historical Battlefield Park. And I probably butchered that name. But but how do you deal with these things, Mike? Um, what, what type of threats do they pose to the parks? Uh, they pose serious threats. Um, park scenery, park resources, natural quiet, uh, 
natural darkness don't end at the park boundary. And so any major development causing impacts right outside the boundary inevitably have impacts on park resources and values. It's a challenge, it's not a clear cut solution. Um, for example, oil and gas development surrounding Chaco Culture National Historic Park in New Mexico, the Ambler Road, the wind farm near Minidoka National Historic Site. Uh, for the most part, those projects are being managed or those activities are being managed by the Bureau of Land Management. And they operate under a multiple use mandate under the Federal Lands Policy and Management Act, FLIPMA, in contrast to the Park Service Organic Act, which prioritizes conservation. It allows use, but if there's a conflict between conservation and use, conservation is to be predominant. Our group comments on a lot of these things. Um, it, it's discouraging that the Bureau of Land Management, a sister agency in the Department of Interior, doesn't feel responsible <laughs> for the impacts that their projects they're managing may adversely affect national park units. So we almost always comment that there's not adequate analysis of the impacts to park, to the neighboring park. Um, their policies don't necessarily recognize the parks. You know, they acknowledge that we can't allow oil and gas development in the on parkland, but we can do it right next to parkland, or that we can't authorize a wind farm on parkland, but we can do it right up to the boundary of the parkland. I think Bureau of Land Management policies are improving, probably more so on renewable energy. So a number of state offices have pretty effective strategies that recognize the presence of parks, national wildlife refuges, other protected areas, and provide for setbacks from those areas within their siting criteria. For Minidoka, that's not the case in Idaho. They don't have that policy. So the uh, proponent for the project wants to build 400 foot wind turbines within a half mile of the boundary of the internment camp. And if you talk to any survivors of being in the internment camp, what marked their experience was the extreme isolation. Mm -hmm. They were relocated from coastal areas to the middle of nowhere so that they would be parked for the rest of World War II. And it, you know they were perceived as a threat even though they were American citizens many of them, but maintaining the setting of a historic site is part of historic preservation because the setting contributes to the feeling that helps characterize or define that site. And at Minidoka, it's the extreme desolation and isolation. So you can imagine 400 wind turbines that are hundreds of feet tall right next door changes how the place is gonna feel. So um, there's no simple solution. Well, the last year or two. I well, think there, there sort of is because the simple solution is that the BLM still has a mandate to protect cultural resources. It's part of their multiple use mandate. And one would argue that they, well, Part of the problem is that the BLM doesn't understand the depth of its own cultural resources 
And so at Chaco and at Minidoka, outside entities had to do the ethnographic studies for the agency, right? Mm -hmm. And so it's like the burden of proof is on the people being harmed to show they're being harmed because the BLM isn't implementing its own cultural resource protective mandates. They're choosing development most of the time over their conservation mandates and their cultural resource mandates. So I do think the simplest solution, and I did have a discussion with BLM staff outside of Minidoka, is to to take that responsibility on. Because like the Chaco folks, people didn't just go to where the park site is established. They were all over the area. And there are kivas and other cultural resources outside of the park unit at Chaco. It's the same thing at Minidoka. When Minidoka was declared a monument, it was this little postage stamp that was declared, not even the full incarceration site, nor all the farming and all the canals and that the incarcerees were very much a part of. And so if the BLM actually focused on its own cultural resource requirements, they would seek to protect those places naturally, like the Park Service does, but they just don't do it. And because of the history of rubber stamping energy projects, you have an agency whose culture needs to change. And I think that's kind of what the BLM is getting at with their conservation regulation that hasn't been finalized yet, is to start making that culture shift within the BLM itself. But this is a good question. And I I was actually talking to a colleague about this the other day about what moral responsibility the BLM has to be a good steward. And I feel like these conversations are very, very tough to have with the BLM because it's not only their legal requirement, but isn't there a moral responsibility to tell the story in a fair way, whether you're at Chaco or Minidoka? And I think those are the questions that surface for me as we're having these discussions and pushing back on an agency, you know, is it's not just the park, but it's that whole cultural resource that exists around that park site. So sorry to interrupt you, Mike, but this is just, this no, is on my daily radar. And I'm just, it. I feel for our friends who, are, you know, our friends in Minidoka and our friends in, you know, the tribes in Pueblos in Chaco is that they have to defend themselves all the time. There's no one within the agency that's helping them per se, you know, on a daily basis, protect those resources. I, I couldn't agree with you more. I, I think an orga- organizational culture change is a large nebulous concept. Yeah. Um, being the pragmatist <laughs> or a bureaucrat, I look at the policies that influence or drive agency decisions. So they have some policy weaknesses to the credit of the current administration. They're revising a number of policies. Um, I, I boil down some of this to just they need better siting criteria. If they're going to allow a project anywhere near a remote Japanese American concentration camp, then they need to have an adequate setback so that the wind farm or whatever it is is hardly visible or never visible on a routine basis. It's, you know, it's not that our group is against renewable energy. It's important, but it's imp- also important where you put it. 
Yeah, I'm just I'm just wondering, you know, where do you put it? Is there another um, logical alternative to the, the, the wind farm siting at, at Minandoka? Sure. I mean, there are other places to link in um, wind turbines in Idaho uh, that are on, there are millions of acres of BLM lands in Idaho. I think, you know, part of this linkage is this uh, transmission corridor that was authorized a while ago and trying to figure out how to connect all of these things. And so the agencies could have been very proactive about this, Kurt, over a decade ago. But what happens is you let the companies come in and say, I want to be here, instead of the agencies saying, you have to stay away from here, but you can go outside of here. And so that's part of the problem is that it, they need to change who who makes the call on this and whether it's oil and gas leasing, mining or renewables development, letting the companies sort of decide where they want to be first instead of putting some parameters on that, like Mike is saying, and some citing criteria. Um, that's where part of the conflict happens is that the agencies aren't proactively telling them where they can't be. Yeah. Um, and some of the better and more innovative BLM renewable energy plans, I forget the exact title, there's one for the Southern California area of BLM, there's one for Arizona. Um, They are very proactive. They identify the preferred development zones, so where there's adequate wind to provide for renewable energy, proximity to transmission lines and storage facilities is there, so they'd have to build out all that infrastructure and avoidance of protected areas and sensitive resources is another element of identifying the preferred development zones. So Idaho, to their credit, Idaho BLM, to their credit, I think because of the controversy surrounding the wind farm near Minidoka, is developing an Idaho state BLM renewable energy strategy that our group commented on. Hopefully, it'll include those kinds of Uh, parameters that help identify the preferred development areas. In other words, the agencies deciding where the development should occur and and not just the industry. Because the way it works now, like Kristen said, industry can come in for whatever reason, like they like this spot because it's more convenient. It's closer to a trans existing transmission line or whatever, but it's literally a half a mile from a national, nationally protected World War II internment camp. And yet the company gets to make that proposal and have it carried forward all the way to an EIS. So to me, the right decision would have been to have a criteria in place when they receive the proposal and to say, sorry, can't do it there. Why don't you look at these other places we've identified as being preferred? Yeah, yeah. We're going to have to end it right there. Um, We're running out of time. We're going to be back next week with Mike and Kristen to take a look at natural resource issues across the national park system this past year. Hope you'll join us then. Christian, Mike, until then, thanks. Thanks, Kurt. Yeah. Okay, we're going to have to end today's show there as we've run out of time. But we'll be back next week with Mike and Kristen to take a look at natural resource issues across the national park system this past year. For The Traveler, this is Kurt Repinchuk. 
The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Parks Travelers podcasts. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. Editing and production work for the National Parks Traveler podcast is done by Splitbeard Productions. You can learn more about us at splitbeardproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit us at nationalparkstraveler.org.